Sonar has a long and storied history, both in terms of evolution and technological development. That is actually super, super interesting, but there's really only one part in the history of sonar that we're interested in today. But to get there, we've got to go back to the 1930s. But first, let me tell you, today's episode is a whirlwind, and it's going to go in some very unexpected directions. We're going to go up and down and really really far down repeatedly and all over the place really but it's fascinating and worth it so buckle up that sound is uh sonar did did you know that sonar is an acronym actually no um it seems like it would be a shortened word for something though does it mean a sound um yeah i, I don't know i have no guesses uh, sound, navigation, and ranging. Where's the O? The second letter of sound. Well, that's cheating. I know, right? Anyway, uh, back in World War One. Thought you said we're going back to the 1930s, not World War One. Yeah, I, I know. Well, World War One is before. I know. I lied. It's a it's a brief detour. Okay. Okay. Continue. Okay. The introduction of submarines into warfare in World War One meant. The need for better detection and navigation technologies for submarines and ships and the following decade saw some pretty major advancements in the technology that would eventually become sonar and find great use in World War II. Understatement of the century. Yeah, and it was during World War II that operators using this newly developed technology began to notice something strange. How strange? Very strange. So imagine you're on a U.S. submarine in the middle of the Atlantic, in the largest war the world has ever seen. Vigilance is vital. The sonar operator is watching out for German U-boats and other objects as well as the seafloor and other geographic points, and suddenly the seabed, it's, it's only 300 to 500 meters deep. You didn't detect a slope, it just, it just rose. And as the sun continues to set, the seabed begins to rise. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yeah, like the earth is exhaling with each sunrise and taking a deep breath in with each nightfall. Sounds eerie, but that can't be what's happening, so what is? That's exactly what sonar operators in the U.S. military wanted to know. Clearly the seabed wasn't moving. There had to be something else going on that was creating this phantom bottom. Phantom bottom? Yeah, I'm, I'm not making that up, that's what it was called, or, or false bottom. What's stranger is this false bottom can be detected all over the world. So what is it? Bikini bottom? But um, shh. No, and I'm getting there. You know, you always do this. You start telling some story, and instead of getting straight to the point, you take the long way around. I just want to know what it is. Yeah, I know, okay, but, and I, I know, you know what? The long way around is more scenic. True, true. It is, and it's about building context and connecting the dots. And if I went, if I just went straight for the punchline, you'd be just as confused as you are now. Try me. Fish. Well, you got me there. Tell me more. How the heck is it fish? Okay, well, every night, millions of marine organisms set out on a great impossible journey. A sort of nightly migration out of the dark depths of the sea to a more shallow realm.
What for? To feast. That doesn't sound ominous at all. There's actually a lot going on here. And there's really one species I want to talk about, but you know what? I'm just not ready yet. So first, I want to talk about zooplankton. Or more so, an astonishingly large horde of zooplankton. How large are we talking? I mean, aren't zooplankton pretty small themselves? Very large, and yes, in fact, uh, large enough to scatter sonar. So during the Second World War, when U.S. military sound propagation experiments were being done by the University of California's Division of War Research and other groups, they consistently had false bottom results at certain times of the day. And it wasn't until they began collaborating with biologists from places like the Scripps Institution that they were able to confirm that what they were observing were reverberations from a natural phenomenon called dial vertical migration. Basically, millions of organisms migrate on a daily basis through different depths in the water column, usually occurring between shallow surface waters of the epipelagic zone, which is from the surface to about 650 feet down, and the deeper mesopelagic zone of the ocean, which is about 650 to around 3,300 feet down. Now, this type we are talking about is the most common, nocturnal, where organisms ascend to the surface around dusk, and they remain there for most of the night before migrating back down to the depths around dawn. So these super tiny organisms are traveling potentially thousands of feet, which must be like miles and miles for them every night just to go back down. Yep. And I want to be clear about something though. Zooplankton, um, it refers to an incredibly wide range of organisms. The term zooplankton basically just means drifting or wandering animal. Many zooplankton are just the immature stages of what will one day become much larger fish, and they can range in size between a couple of micrometers to even a few inches. Either way, the journey is basically like running a marathon or two with clown shoes on. I suppose the obvious question then is, why? Well, many zooplankton avoid the surface waters during the day to avoid predation. There's a little less action in the deeper, not as well lit parts of the ocean, and they migrate to feast on detritus and phytoplankton and bacterioplankton and even each other under the cover of darkness like Bane on Batman. Oh lord, here we go. Oh, you think the darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it. Molded by it. I didn't see the light of day until I was already a fish. You were just waiting for that opportunity, weren't you? My entire life. <laughs> but it isn't just zooplankton making the migration, and they aren't necessarily the largest cause of the deep scattering layer either. Then what is? Another organism entirely. One that makes up about 65% of deep sea biomass. That's a very impressive percentage. Yep, which equates to about 600 million metric tons, the long tons. To put that in perspective, it was estimated that only 110 million metric tons of fish were caught by fisheries around the entire globe for the entire year of 2010. So like six times less. 600 million metric tons is equivalent to 3 million Statues of Liberty. Dang, got any more examples? Yeah, uh, let's see. The Great Pyramid of Giza, that weighs 6.5 million tons. So after conversion... We're talking a biomass is equal to over 100 great pyramids. And what are they? Lanternfish. Lanternfish? Yep. 
Lanternfish inhabit the mesopelagic zones of the world's oceans, and they belong to an extensive family called Mycophidae. It's about 250 species. And as you might have guessed, lanternfish earn their name for their spectacular display and use of bioluminescence, a trait shared by all but one lanternfish species. That bioluminescence piece, we'll be talking about that amazing adaptation in the second half of the season, so I'm going to mostly ignore it for now. This is crazy that these animals that so many people have never even seen could make up so much of the life in a whole part of the ocean. But what, what do they look like again? Lanternfish are typically uh, silvery and slender with a rounded head and proportionally massive eyes. Bioluminescent light is produced by these specialized organs uh, called photophores, which are positioned in rows along the body and head. Some have photophores in other locations, such as the tail or near their eyes or on the fence. The color emitted kind of varies too between species, sometimes a blue, yellow, or even a greenish color. But more interestingly, the patterns at which these photophores are arranged are specific to certain species. Other than being one of the most widely distributed vertebrates on the planet, they're also really, really densely populated at nearly one per cubic meter in the open ocean. Their wide dispersal around the planet and immense abundance make them vital to supporting ecosystems across the world, often as a food source. And despite their significant makeup for the ocean's biomass, individual lanternfish are pretty small, less than six inches. The smallest are just under an inch, but they can also reach nearly a foot in some species. And what's their role here in the whole vertical migration thing? Oh, right, yes. So during the daytime, lanternfish can be found anywhere between, let's say, 1,000 to 5,000 feet deep. But as the sun sets, lanternfish migrate these epic distances towards the surface. And is it for the same reason as the zooplankton? Partially, yes. In fact, and again, we'll dive deeper into this topic in a later episode, but the bottom side of lanternfish are aligned with those specialized light-producing structures called photophores. And if you were a fish below the lanternfish looking up, all you'd really see is like this faint bluish blur. Because the position of the sun and time of day affects how deep the light is traveling into the ocean, lanternfish have to time their daily migration so that the light produced on their bellies more closely matches that same amount of light that's uh, entering through the surface into their surroundings. You know, to avoid standing out like a beacon in too dark water. Anyway, there's another connection here, in that the timing and location of these migrations tends to follow that of the zooplankton. I won't beat around the bush too much on this one, the answer's kind of obvious and short. Lanternfish are following their food, the zooplankton. And lanternfish then are responsible for this phantom bottom phenomena. Right. But not necessarily totally in the way that you would think. Different species of lanternfish occupy different layers of depth in the ocean. And they do so by forming these really densely packed skulls, sort of like uh, uh, claiming and occupying a turf. The sheer density of those skulls is a factor, yeah, sure, but the deep scattering layer effect is massively aided by the gases in their swim bladders, which get picked up by the sonar. What exactly is the swim bladder? It's their shortcut for daily migrations, and it makes it a relatively easygoing process as compared to what the zooplankton have to deal with. It's basically a balloon-type organ in the body of most bony fish that they can inflate and deflate to control their buoyancy. When the sonar hits these bubbles of gas, there's a resonance effect where that bubble vibrates back, sending the signal back. 
even still, lanternfish aren't the only organisms responsible. There's also siphonophores who are a major contributor. They're like a stringy gelatinous hydrozoa belonging to the phylum Cnidaria. The, the same as jellyfish, actually. So not only have they somehow adapted to have natural flashlights, but can control their depth at least as easily as a submarine itself. I know, right? And to think that this natural phenomenon was the center of covert Navy operations in World War II, aimed at figuring out ways to decipher between these hordes of sea critters and German U-boats. Which sounds funny now, but I can see why research could have literally been a life-or-death type of challenge that really needed to be overcome. Right. And even still, there's a lot of interest in whether or not this natural occurrence could be used to hide ships or military vessels. Maybe these maybe military vessels could mimic the deep scattering layer in some way. Of course, that's what they want to do. Absolutely right. But what I find the most interesting in this is the larger cyclic ecological role being fulfilled by this daily migration. Of course you do, but how do you mean? This migration, this massive journey taking place every night all around the globe, it's like a it's like a massive organic machine fulfilling a supremely vital role to the balance of the planet. And the players, they they have no idea they're even in the game. The phytoplankton eat, eaten by the zooplankton, eaten by the lanternfish, eaten by the other larger fish, some which are dwellers of the deep, they help to take carbon from the surface and bring it to the bottom of the ocean in a sort of globally active carbon pump. Something that has a lot of relevance and importance in relation to a changing climate. I mean, what happens if uh, the phytoplankton go away? Or the zooplankton? If one of these pieces of this machine is lost, the pump doesn't work. So, sure, there are militaristic points of interest here, but to think about how all this came to be, it's fascinating. It truly is. And speaking about ocean cleansing, if you don't mind, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who donated to the ocean cleanup last month during my birthday fundraiser. The ocean cleanup is a charity group that helps take plastic back out of the ocean that you can donate to at any time simply by going on Facebook. Perfect. Well, I think that's a good point to wrap up. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Last week's Animal Sound of the Week, you, you'll, you're, you probably didn't guess and might not have ever guessed, was a rhino. Rhino, right? <laughs> oh my god. Uh, okay. Just <laughs> get worse and worse. I know. I'm a dad. It's okay. Yeah, he, he, he yeah, it figures since yeah. you are literally a dad. Yep, dad jokes. Yep, it's evolution. I can't help it. Devin has evolved into <laughs> Devin Dad. I even have a cardigan. Uh... 
Anyway, this week's animal sound of the week is this one. How about this for a change in tune? Okay, we've probably killed people's eardrums enough. You're welcome. As always, send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. Don't be greedy. A prize. Remember, if you have any questions for us that you want or need answered, submit those by sending us a message on Facebook, send me a message on Instagram at Devin the Nature Guy, or click the big giant green Ask TWL button on the front page of the website, thewildlife.blog. Remember, there's no such thing as a bad or dumb question. Because the whole of human knowledge came to be only after a bunch of bad questions. So, never be afraid to ask. Instructions on how to submit your questions can be found at thewildlife.blog forward slash podcast. The Wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash thewildlife. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the wildlife when you become a patron you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear on our show or ask questions or help read the credits for sources and a more in-depth look at what we talked about today check out the wildlife.blog as always if we've made a mistake please let us know with a quick message and we'll do our best to correct it thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the itunes store and share it with your friends Avita Zane, everyone. Bye.